to God's word. Uh, we're in 1 Peter, just a couple more weeks in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses together. 1 Peter 4, uh, 1 through 11. As you turn there, uh, given lots of updates this, this morning, uh, but a number of you have been asking, so I thought I'd give a personal update as well, an update on, on my family. Um, if you're visiting, uh, you, you might not know what's going on, but um, we have, this is one church and two congregations. We are here in Ahwatukee. This congregation meets twice on Sunday mornings. At 4 p.m. on Sunday evenings, we have a congregation that meets downtown in downtown Phoenix. And uh, a couple of months ago, there's, there's been a pastoral change, and my wife and I have been called to go and be the, the lead pastor of, of uh, New Valley downtown. And so we're going to be, uh, things have happened so fast. Thank you so much for your, your prayers uh, for us. Our house went under contract in the first 24 hours. It was on the market, um, and the Lord has opened up an amazing door uh, for a house downtown, and things have happened so fast. We're actually moving this coming Saturday. Um, and so if you're not doing anything, um, <laughs> subtle. He's abusing his position as a pastor. No. Uh, no, a number of you said, please, let me, please tell me when you're moving so I can come help you. We do need a little help. Email me if you're interested. It's going to be on Saturday morning. Uh, but no pressure whatsoever, uh, but we would enjoy that. But don't tell me after the service, because my, my brain is mush on Sundays anyway, and I have a head cold, so if you would email me, that would be awesome. We're in First Peter chapter 4. We're going to read the first 11 verses uh, together. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is uh, God's word. I want to ask a main uh, question today, and we're going to keep kind of coming back to it, and it's really the main application that I want us to make as we read through this passage Together, and we're going to return to it in the end as well. The question is this it's kind of a big one. What would change in our lives if we saw life the way that Christ saw it? What would change in our lives if we saw the world through the lens of Jesus' suffering, the way that he suffered and the way he sees the world? If that were to be our perspective, what would change? Sure, we've got some uh, C.S. Lewis fans uh, in, in the crowd this morning, some Narnia, 
uh, fans. Did you know that C.S. Lewis wrote some other books other than, than The Chronicles of Narnia? Lots of nonfiction, uh, but he actually wrote some other fiction as well. Uh, there is something called the Space Trilogy. Uh, who in here has read the Space Trilogy before? Anyone? Okay, we got three or four. Uh, not his, his most known works. Uh, these are works of, of fiction that he did in the, in the late 1930s, early 1940s. And, uh, it, you know, they're, they're fiction, they're science fiction. So you just identified yourself as, as the nerds in the room. Uh, and that's all right. I've read them as well. Uh, the first book in this space trilogy it has to do with, with, with uh, space travel. And the, the, the main character, I'm just going to geek out for a second, fair warning. Um, he goes to Mars. All right, and this is, remember, it's 1938 when C.S. Lewis is writing this. So some of this stuff is going to be a little dated. But he goes to Mars, and in this book... Which the first one is called "Out of the Silent Planet." Uh, this 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 man, Doctor Ransom, is is kidnapped, uh, forced against his will to to fly to Mars on this spaceship, and um, and what the story is about. Of course, he's afraid as he as he leaves the Earth and he goes to this new place. He assumes, armed with with all of his learning as a professor and uh, his scientific reasoning. And everything, he's advanced himself so far, he assumes that wherever he goes, uh, whatever place that he goes to, and whatever people he might meet there are going to be more savage than him. Uh, because the world is the light, and science is the light. C.S. Lewis is writing this to, to challenge that. And so he goes on the spaceship, but it, from the start, from the very beginning all the way to the end, his perspective on human life and on the earth um, changes, right? He, he, he expects that, that the earth is, is the light. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful place, and all of space around it is, is this dark and cold and distant place. And, uh, but what he's surprised to see as he even travels through space is he sees, no, in fact, um, remember, it's 1938, it's bright and it's beautiful, and the, the, uh, the planets are actually interruptions in what he calls the heavens. So he no longer sees it as space. That's such a negative word, emptiness. He sees it as the heavens. He, he arrives on Mars, and uh, he meets these creatures, these aliens, uh, and he assumes that they're going to be savage toward him. There's three different uh, creatures, three different species, and he meets them all in different stages of the story. And uh, he assumes that at every turn that they're going to be the one that's going to be the malicious ones. They, they want to destroy him. And what he finds is that his perspective is then again changed. Uh, not only are they peaceable towards him, they're peaceable towards one another, and they've kind of created this perfect society. And they look at him as an outsider, as someone who doesn't have it all together. And so the title of the book, Out of the Silent Planet, he's come out of this, this place that is, um, that is silent, and, and yet he begins to see himself as the alien, as the one who doesn't have it all together. And C.S. Lewis is writing this, of course, to challenge our understanding of our own humanity. We, we kind of go around the world, most of us, thinking that the way that we see the world um, is the right way. The way that we process things is the right way to process them. And we tend to assume, if we're Christians, that the way that we see the world is, is the way that God sees the world. And uh, we just kind of make this kind of mental leap in our heads. But what I want to challenge us to do, it may be the fact that you do see the world the way God sees it, but I want us to challenge that assumption 
and to come to this passage and see what would change if my perspective was that of Christ when I look at my life. If I could get some distance, you know, uh, to be able to look at my life and see what are my assumptions and what is it that actually Christ sees when he looks at my life. What would it change? Verse, verse 1 says this, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus. Jesus has suffered in the flesh, verse 1 says, and so arm yourself with this same way of thinking. Have a suffering mentality. This is the way that you should look at your life, the way that Christ sees it. And so what would change if we actually did that? I want to see three things. And the first one is this. Our passions would change. Secondly, our prayers would change. And then third, our idea of our possessions would change. So first, our passions would change. Verse 2 says this. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And then verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, something changes when you see the world the way Christ sees it. Your passions change. You no longer see things from a human perspective, but increasingly you see them uh, from God's perspective, what He's passionate about, what He wants to pursue. And you submit that to him. Uh, this last Monday, I was, uh, I was reading in the Psalms, and uh, this, this two verses have just stayed with me all week. Um, this is from Psalm 4, verse 6 and 7. It says this, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Right? That's, that's a very human question. Uh, how do I have a good life? What is the good thing to pursue? And then he says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Isn't that beautiful? What he's saying is he's contrasting himself from people who don't follow after the Lord. And he's saying, I've, I'm coming to see that your way is more good and more beautiful than anything else. Any other way that we might define abundance, I see your way, your passions. I want to be passionate about what you're passionate about. And so how do we get to that point where we're seeing uh, the way that God sees with our passions? Well, for one thing, we have to have a different perspective on our sin. For the Christian, sin is something that's part of your old life. That's what it says in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and all these, these specific sins that he lists. The time is... The time that is past suffices. What does, that, what does that mean? It's kind of convoluted. What he's saying is, haven't you had enough of your old way of life? Haven't you had it? Wasn't it enough when you lived that way, but now you have God's perspective on things. You can see the emptiness of what it is to follow after the other things in the world. Life is not, its meaning is not found in doing all these other things and being passionate about the things that the Gentiles or people that don't follow after God are passionate about, you have a greater good, a greater passion to pursue. And for in a real sense, you are done with sin. I mean, it says that in verse 2. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That may be confusing to you uh, as we, we confessed our sin earlier. And so if we're confessing our sin, then obviously we haven't ceased from it in some sense. But what this passage is saying is that you're no longer under sin. Uh, that's no longer your mode of operation in your life. 
If you have Christ, he's taken care of that sin. And so when you look at sin, your passion should be to, to avoid it, that it's part of your old life. It doesn't mean that you don't have individual sins and you don't wrestle with those things, but that's the key. You wrestle with them. They're, they're not something that you uh, enjoy or that you kind of cherish. They're, they're things that, that are part of an old life, and they, they seem that way to you. So what is your view of sin? What is your understanding of, of when you sin? Is, is, is it something that you kind of protect or, or cherish, or maybe you justify it and you're like, ah, this isn't sin when everyone else is saying it's sin. That's not the perspective of Christ. The perspective of Christ is you don't have to live this way anymore. You're free to live for the good things that I have given you, the good way of life that you can pursue. You have to have a different perspective on, on sin, but also in friendship. It, it gives a situation where these uh, people that don't follow after Christ they, they kind of malign you and they separate you, your friendship. That's what it says in verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account for the God who judges living and the dead. It's saying um, there's a difference between the way that you operate in the world and those who don't follow after Christ. You don't join them. Uh, actually, literally, you could translate that uh, you don't travel with them. You don't, uh, you don't go with them. You're not about the same things that they are about. You can see their end, and it's not good. Uh, a number of months ago, one of the students in, in the student's ministry here was, uh, was talking to me, and I've had this conversation like a zillion times. It's a, it's a thing that we all worry about, no matter what stage of life you're in. But they were saying, my friends are leading me astray, um, you know, so when I'm with my friends, I do things that I shouldn't do. I say things I shouldn't say, and uh, I'm I'm wrestling with how to to do that. How do I, you know, challenge that? Because I know on the other side, uh, I'm supposed to be a friend to them, and I'm supposed to, you know, uh, reach out to them, and I shouldn't just avoid them just because they're not Christians, right? I mean, I'm supposed to be on mission for them, and so how do you how do you, uh, you know, determine what you should do there? And the answer is, is always the same. Of course, you can be friends with someone, uh, but that doesn't mean that you join them in, in the things that they enjoy. You have a different perspective on life. You have different passions if you're a follower of Jesus. And so what often happens is um, they don't like that. The darkness hates the light, the Bible says, and they want to they flee from you. And that is what this passage is saying is likely to happen to you because of your commitment to being passionate about the things that God is passionate about. The gospel sometimes divides people. We have a different perspective on sin, different perspective on friendship. We have a different perspective on time. It says in verse 7, uh, the end of all things is at hand. God is, is standing ready to judge, it says in verse 6. Uh, the, the end is near. Time is short. And so as a Christian, your perspective on these passions of the world uh, is not like, oh, I should just do as much as I can. Uh, it's, no, that, it's short, the amount of time that I have in my life. And so why would I pursue after these things when I can pursue after the Lord? Now, you may have a couple of questions about uh, this passage. There's some kind of weird verses in here that may be hard to understand. The first one is, is the one that I just, I just said. Uh, you know, the end is near, it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 7. And you may wonder in, in your mind, like, 
what is that all about? Like, the end is near. This was written 2,000 years ago. So, was the end near? Is it still near? Uh, is this a mistake? Did Peter just not really understand time? What's going on? And uh, the answer to that, of course, is that our understanding of time is different than, than God's. Just like my kids' understanding of time is different from mine. I mean, if you've ever traveled with, with toddlers, you know this to be the case. I mean, you, you load up your kids, as I do all the time, and the, the question comes immediately, how long is this going to take? And we've devised a three-part you know, system for communicating this to them. It's going to be a short drive, a medium drive, or a long drive. Uh, short drive being defined as to the grocery store or somewhere else. Um, medium drive would be like uh, downtown or to Scottsdale. Uh, and then a long drive is like Flagstaff. <laughs> I mean, my kids have no concept for like driving across the country or spending all day in the car. They just, they just don't have that. They see time differently. And the same is true for us. We see, we look at the world and all we know is our own experience. And yet God says that his a thousand years is like a day to him and a day is like a thousand years. And also, you know, he's not slow as some count slowness, the scripture says, but he's patient, wanting everyone to, to repent. He sees time differently. And so for us, it's always true that the end is at hand because we don't know how God sees it. The, the second issue that you might have is this weird verse about, um, you know, the gospel being preached to the dead. Verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that those judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. What does this verse mean? A lot of people have, have talked about this, and uh, it, it, is, it is a hard one to interpret, but what most people think, and what I think as well, is that what this is saying is, it's not that we like communicate with the dead or something about, about Jesus. What he's saying is, those who have died in Christ, they have the gospel too. You have to understand, in the, in this, in the first century, people are looking at Christianity and they're saying, Jesus can't be the way. This is like, you guys are ridiculous. You're preaching about the resurrection. Well, where's Jesus? You're preaching about new life after death. Well, people are dying. You know, people are getting old and dying and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So maybe your, your faith is in vain. And what he's saying is, no, the people who have died, they're not outside of Christ. If they, if they had the gospel... Um, before they, they died, then they have Jesus. Even though they may be judged in the flesh, martyred in some kind of way, uh, they, have this, they have life in God. That's what it's, that's what it's saying. We have, a different, we have a different perspective on the, on the passions of life. Uh, that's what would change if you were to look at your life through the lens of what Jesus uh, has done, his suffering on the cross, you would see time and sin and, and friendships differently, the passions of your life. But secondly, this, we would, see, we would have a different perspective on our prayers. Prayers would change. Verse 7, I just want to camp out here for a second. Amazing verse. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let me read that again. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Does that strike you as a, as a strange verse, anyway? Um, I had to read that over and over and over again. Um, here's how I would write the scripture if I was trying to, like, 
write it as an American. Many of us probably would. What we'd probably say is this. Pray so that you can be sober-minded and self-controlled. Wouldn't that be what we say? Because prayer is a means to an end for us often. Uh, often we, we think, well, you know, I need to pray so I can be better at evangelism. I need to pray so I can be better uh, at connecting with God. Or whatever it, the end goal is, is something different. Prayer is a means to that end. This challenges that. It says, be sober-minded, that's the command. Be self-controlled, another command, for the sake of your prayers, so that you can arrive uh, at a state of, of prayer. Prayer is not a means to an end. It is the end. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5 means as well, if you've ever been confused by that verse. Pray without ceasing. How is that possible, to pray without ceasing? It means your life becomes a prayer. It becomes the thing, your pursuit of God is such that you live a life of prayer. And that is, in fact, the way that Jesus saw the world. If you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus, he lived this life before the Father, constantly doing his will, speaking to him, moving away so that he could be with him. His life was a prayer. And this would have been such a poignant moment for Peter as he's writing this. Why? Because he failed, as is often recorded in the scripture, Peter's failures, but he failed in Gethsemane when Jesus asked him to do what? To pray. He took the disciples with him and he said, come with me for a while. Watch and pray. Watch and pray with me. And what did the disciples do? They fell asleep on the job. Their eyes were too heavy. They were drunk with sleep. And so they just kept falling asleep. And Jesus kept coming back to them saying, stay awake, watch with me, pray with me. And they kept falling asleep. And what Peter is saying here is he gives us this command. It's some of the same language. He's saying, I want to watch and pray now. Now that I understand, I've seen the sufferings of Jesus. I witnessed them firsthand. Now I understand the gospel that that suffering was on my behalf. And now I never want to be caught not watching and praying for him. His appearance. The end is near. And I want to see him. I want to watch for him. I want to be in the state of prayer. Have you gotten there yet? I don't, I haven't. I feel like in a lot of ways I'm learning uh, how to pray, which is a somewhat embarrassing thing to say as a pastor. But there's lots of prayer in my life, but it's different from something that we just do. It is a place that we arrive to with the Lord, this place where we're depending on him and trusting in him, and we're sober-minded we're self-controlled to reach that place before him. I'm going to move from prayer as something that I do to a place where I am with him. How do we do that? Well, the, it, the command is here in the passage. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Um, it, it takes focus. It takes time for you to, to recognize that your unhurried time with God is valuable. And it's important to reach that place. Have you arrived there? If we took the, the lens of, of Christ's sufferings, our passions would change, our prayers would change, and our idea of our possessions would also change. What we've been given. We would use what we've been given differently. 
We often use what we have for self-promotion, self-indulgence. But if we've been given the perspective of Christ, then we see the world the way he sees it. We see what we have as something to give away. That's what Jesus did. He had the glory of, of the Trinity and from eternity past, and he gave that up to become a man and to live among us. He gave up what he had on our behalf. And when we do that, we see the world differently. We see, we see what we've been given as, as something that, that we can give away. This is what it says in verse 8 through 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. And he gives a couple of examples. Use what you've been given to serve one another. And it's interesting, this is the exact mirror image of, of the earlier sins that he listed. Um, you know, Peter says, these are the things you should, you should do. Uh, but before that, he, he said, this is what the Gentiles pursue after. And they're opposite. He says, you should love, not lust. Uh, you should be sober-minded, not drunk. You should dem demonstrate hospitality, not these sexual sins that you're having um, in your house. These, you should serve, not exploit people. It's like a mirror image. This is the way that Christ sees the world. And we're called to do these things. We're called to love above all. Verse 8 tells us that love is the, is the pinnacle. 1 Corinthians 15 says the same thing. The greatest gift is love. To, to, to pour out your life for someone else in love. And here it says that it covers a multitude of sins. If you see the world the way Christ sees the world, you don't look at other people, and this is convicting to me, I hope it is to you as well, you don't see other people as frustrations or you don't see their faults first, or their insecurities first, or their immaturities first. You see them as people who deserve love. Just the way that Christ saw you, and he didn't focus on what you didn't have, but what he could give you in his own sacrifice. You love other people that way. You're hospitable. It says you're, we show hospitality without grumbling. By the way, um, we're, everyone in this room is called to be hospitable. Sometimes we say that's like a gift that some people have. But but the scripture says, be hospitable. Some people may be better at it than others, but we're all called to demonstrate the gospel by having people into our homes and to care for them. And then finally, that you have these special gifts. Verse 10 says, each one has received a gift, and you have to steward that according to God's grace. Do you know what you've been given as a special gift? He lists speaking and serving and other things. Do you, have you identified what God has given you, and are you using that to serve other people. Because you haven't fully understood the suffering of Christ if you're unwilling to roll up your sleeves and serve other people that way. That's the perspective of Christ. When you, when you have this perspective, you, you see the world the way that he sees it. Uh, about a year and a half ago at Christmas time, uh, I was playing with my son, my oldest, in a park. And uh, if you know Cademan, he's got this this amazing imagination. I mean, crazy um, the things that he can think up. And we're playing in, in the park, and I have this idea. Let's, let's play, let's pretend that we're in the North Pole. And he thinks that's a great idea. And so he says, we have to get to the North Pole through this door. And he opens up an imaginary door on, on the wall, actually the wall that goes to the 202, <laughs> you know, this huge wall. 
And he opens up the imaginary door, and then we imaginarily walk through it, and then suddenly we turn around, and the park now is the North Pole. And, uh, and I say, what should we do? And we, should we go see Santa Claus? And, and he says, yes, he's way over there. And there's a bunch of rocks way across the other side of the park. And so he says, let's go see him. He starts taking off running, and I run with him. And we, we get to the middle of, of the park, and this is a big area. We've probably gone like 200 yards or so. And he stops all of a sudden. And he says, I forgot. And he starts running back. And he's running, and I'm kind of tagging along with him and saying, what did you forget? Is everything okay? And uh, he gets back to the same place on the wall where we, where we were, and he shuts the imaginary door. <laughs> so I forgot to shut the door. And then he takes off again. <laughs> he saw the North Pole, you know, like amazing. That such that I don't think it's just ADD. You know, I think he's, I think he, in his mind, he saw there was an open door in what he imagined. And he had to go fix it. I want to see the world the way Christ sees it. I want us to see the world the way Christ sees it. When we look at what we're doing and how we're spending our time and how we're loving one another, if, if the sufferings of Jesus were then the thing that, that created the world for us, what would change? If that was transformed in front of us, what would change? To see everything the way Jesus sees it such that sin has no appeal anymore. It's, it's part of the old life. It's something distant from us. Such that when we look at our friendships and we look at the other things that God has given us, we want to serve Christ in those areas. Such that our prayer life um, is, is not something that we just do and check off. It, it's a way that we live before the Father to see it the way He sees it. Think about that question again. What would change in your life if you were to see the world the way Christ sees it? Just imagine for a second that, that you're Jesus looking at your own life and you see it the way he sees it, what are the things that pop up and it's like, yep, that's not in line with the gospel. The sufferings of Jesus don't speak to that. What would change? Be honest. Because wherever those areas are, that's likely where the Holy Spirit is stirring you to change and to look to Jesus and to see things the way he sees them. Let's pray. God, we're not equipped to do that. We still love sin. We still cherish it. We still find good in other things. And we still have a hard time believing that you are better. Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see what you see? A world that's broken but has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And that that would transform us into people who love and show hospitality and, and give our whole selves and our lives in ministry to you. Help us, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.